voter suppression. Do you hear that and think, nah, that doesn't affect me? Well, yeah, I get it. I felt that way too until we dove deeper into the discussion we're about to have about how even if you voted in 2020, and thank you if you did, we should all be concerned about the move towards voter suppression that's happening right now in our country. For our longtime listeners, you'll hear that the sound quality is different, and that's for a few reasons. One is that we're keeping this conversation short. It'll be about 15 minutes since so many of you are parents whose kids may be on spring break. Two, it's on a brand new platform called Fireside, which is an audio-only platform, which we think may be the future of podcasting. It allows interaction. So if you're interested in checking it out, let us know, and we'll send you a link to get hooked up. And three, it was recorded on Sarah's birthday while she was in the car coming home from laser tag, Sarah being me, to get out from some from frustration about the latest state of the world in order to stick with our usual fireside quick chat time, which is on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. Pacific time, 12.30 p.m. Mountain time. So with that, if you want to join us, let us know. This week, we witnessed an attack on democracy. On Thursday, March 25th, Governor Kemp in Georgia signed a law into effect and notably, he did so behind closed doors, which puts into place much of what we talk about in this upcoming episode. As the New York Times noted, this legislation will undermine pillars of voting access by limiting drop boxes for mail ballots, introducing more rigid voter identification requirements for absentee balloting, and making it a crime to provide food or water to people waiting in line to vote. What's more disturbing, even as Governor Kemp was denying charges that the sweeping election changes he just signed into law didn't suppress the vote, authorities outside his office were dragging away a black legislator who knocked on his office door during his remarks during, regarding the bill. President Biden on Friday called this legislation Jim Crow in the 21st century and a blatant attack on the Constitution and good conscience. But this won't be the end of it. Listen in for why we all need to be concerned about voter suppression right now. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. I just want to say, if you did vote in 2020, thank you. And I want to ask, was it easy? Was it tough? Did you get the day off from work or did you walk your whole family over as you deposited your ballot? You know, did you protest the options and not vote? I just want you to take a moment and remember your voting experience. You know, I've in my past voted from New York. You know, I remember pulling those tabs in the voting booth that closed the curtains around us. I voted on absentee ballots in the years that I've Japan, relying on the postal services to get my vote in to be counted. You know, I voted in Arizona and Colorado for years where people are automatically mailed their ballot to drop them off at a polling place or in a vote collection box, just like on the street. Yeah. In California, we have permanent mail-in voter registration and voting. So I've been mailing in my ballot for years. Which is amazing, right? So again, how has vote to you is the question, because there's some changes that are happening. And as it turns out, because of all the things, for whatever reason, 2020 was a record-setting year for voting, right? And we know some of the reasons, but as Politico noted, the United States saw the largest raw turnout ever. We had 81 million voters backing Biden over Trump, who had 74 million votes. And that is the second most in American history. It's a lot of people casting their votes. Totally. But we're not done yet. 
as many news sources noted, you know, earlier this week and this month, states nationwide are about to make it a lot harder to vote. Acting partly in response to widespread false allegations of fraud in the 2020 presidential election, and you might know this or have heard of this as the big lie, which is namely that Trump won the election and that there is widespread voter fraud. So in response to that, state legislatures have introduced about 250 bills this year that would limit access to voting. I mean, that's a lot of bills. But I think the important thing for us all to remember is why is this so bad? And the reason is because there are some anti-voting laws that could maybe not only suppress votes of people of color, but could also hurt Republican constituents. In other words, the people who are fighting to put these measures in place may be hurting themselves as well. And we'll get to why these might remind you of the discriminatory Jim Crow laws in a moment. But I do want to talk a little bit about some of these bills that are coming into play right now. So everybody is aware of this because, I mean, it could affect all of us. Right. So again, you know, a lot of these bills are being introduced to prevent that alleged widespread voter fraud from happening. And, you know, one more time to be clear, there's zero proof that that happened in 2020. But for example, Georgia's House of Representatives just passed a package that restricts early voting on Sundays. And that's important because many black churches run get out the vote campaigns called souls to the polls on Sundays. According to the deputy legal director for the Southern Poverty Law Center Action Fund, which is one arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which we love here at the podcast and are personal fans of, they prioritize impact litigation on issues such as voting rights and criminal justice reform. And according to this woman, Nancy Abudu, she says there's absolutely no coincidence in terms of the people who are going to be impacted and the timing of these restrictions, basically. You know, we're also seeing attacks on absentee voting, which I've done when I lived abroad, and then voter purges, which could affect you, you know, maybe if you have a common name and someone who isn't eligible has your same name. They're adding voter requirements and eliminating automatic and same-day voter registration. You know, another example, um, and we're full of examples today, HB 531, which passed the Georgia House earlier this month, would require voters to submit the number of their Georgia driver's license or ID card or a photocopy of the ID on absentee ballot applications. Which I have to interrupt and ask. And by the way, for all who are listening, Sasha is the lawyer. I rely on her for all these sorts of more technical things. But to me, honestly, in theory, having your own ID on an absentee ballot in theory, sounds good. So you mentioned this, obviously, because there must be a downside. Yeah. Well, A, it plays into a middle class bias, right? Because it assumes everyone has a driver's license or, you know, the right ID because they do restrict the types of IDs that will get you to voting registration and voting rights or access to a copy machine, right? Because they're asking for a photocopy of the ID sometimes. And also, you know, some parts of this law is really not necessary because you do are already need to submit ID or some form of ID a lot of times for mail and absentee. But, you know, going back to what I just said, this leads to privileging types of IDs because, you know, and in, in looking into this, I was astounded. Did you know that in Texas, you can vote with a gun ID, basically the ID to have a, a firearm, but not a student ID? And Alabama won't let public housing IDs be valid voter IDs. So you're already talking about certain types of people that are not being able to vote, while other types of people are definitely finding those hurdles less difficult. I'm literally looking for like that emoji, like, the, are you serious? <laughs> like On this platform, I just wanted to say that that seems that's shocking to me. I had no idea. You know, again, I think it seems like we're creating policies to fight corruption that doesn't exist. There's other things that are trying to reduce the number of days voters have to request absentee ballots, which again, with a slowdown in the USPS service, seems a little irresponsible to do it. 
people are trying to pass laws that limit access to drop boxes, which we use in Colorado as a standard, for example, and it seems to work with very, like, no massive widespread fraud. And then people seem to want to restrict weekend early voting, which I actually don't understand why. Well, back to the Black church thing where a lot of the voter registration drives happen, that's on the weekend. But also, you know, if you're thinking about who has the flexibility to vote during the week versus who may need, you know, who may be working long hours during the week and who may need the weekend time to vote. Interesting, right? Okay, so let's go back to this for a second, because Politico is a great news source for some of this conversation. And a lot of political consultants, they say, behind the scenes will tell you things like absentee balloting was a tool that had actually been more effectively used by Republicans for the last few election cycles. And this is from the executive director of Secure Democracy, someone named Sarah Walker, and they work to support policies to improve election integrity at every level. And what they're saying is that these overcorrections, these knee-jerk reactions we're having right now and in law may have unintentional downsides where they wind up disenfranchising a number of their own voters. And so this is why we think we all need to care about what's coming down the pike in terms of voter suppression, because what's really going on, this is our thought. If these restrictions remind you of the Jim Crow South, we think they should. We are currently facing the largest rollback of voter rights since possibly Reconstruction. And this right to vote, this ability to have a voice and a say in our representation is one of the huge premises that people who support America's amazingness go on and on about. Right. We do not want the ability to vote to go away. Does anybody like I feel like it's a really critical part of our ability to choose our representatives. So I want to turn this over to the legal side. No, I think you're going to go in, but folks, she's not. It's awesome. I want to hear this more. What's really happening there? Because I I think to really understand what's happening, right, we have to understand the measures that we have currently that A, keep voter rights in place and B, fight challenges to voting rights. And I get it, right? For those of you who aren't that thrilled about a deep legal and congressional dive, anyone I'm raising my hand. I do not actually like this stuff, but I think it's important to understand because these are the structures. And like, I so often am stuck in these days feeling like, cool, like this is not okay, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't know enough about it. So I really want to understand what I'm reading about. And I would love for you to put this in context because I think it's really important to know. Yes. Because if we don't know the framework, we don't know why it's such a big deal when these positions and these precedents are challenged, right? And how contrary to popular belief, things can still be challenged, even though they're, you know, in the Constitution or already a law, right? So let's go back to where it all began. The Constitution's 14th and 15th Amendments ratified in the post-Civil War Reconstruction ban racial discrimination in voting. Under Jim Crow, white Southern Democrats nevertheless stopped Black people from voting through violence and a variety of institutional mechanisms. Some laws led to what voting rights experts call vote denial by preventing or making it harder for Black citizens to vote. Other laws resulted in vote dilution by weakening Black voting strength. So vote denial is making it harder for Black citizens to vote. Vote dilution is weakening Black voting strength. A classic example is the at-large election system in which city council members are elected by a citywide vote. In a city where the majority of voters are white and where voters of different races prefer different candidates, at-large elections ensure that white majority-backed candidates always win, preventing minority voter representation. And I have to sit with that for a moment because I've seen our city's at-large elections. And to be honest, I never, ever thought of it this way. Right. Well... So then after that, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, or VRA, was written to respond to these diverse efforts to really thwart non-white voting rights. 
It banned specific vote denial practices, such as literacy tests and poll taxes, and enabled the Justice Department to directly register voters. The VRA also included more general protections. One is Section 2, which is the VRA's nationwide ban on voting practices that result in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote based on race. So that goes back to vote denial, right? Enforced by lawsuits challenging particular practices, Section 2 primarily has been used to challenge vote dilution especially through at-large election systems. So going back to that scenario again, where you've got a majority white area, the power of the non-white vote has been diluted through the majority being able to decide and support only white candidates. But better known than Section 2 is Section 5. So we're still in the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, in which Congress froze the voting procedures used by jurisdictions with histories of racial discrimination, primarily in the Deep South. So if these places wanted to change how they conducted elections, first they needed preclearance by convincing the Justice Department that the change wouldn't have racially discriminatory effects. The big difference between the two is that Section 5 made states or localities demonstrate, affirmatively demonstrate, that the changes wouldn't harm minority voting rights, where while Section 2 requires the challengers to show that the practices have racially discriminatory effects. So the importance of that difference is where the onus is placed, right? So as a result, Section 2 lawsuits are complex expensive and unpredictable because they typically require detailed statistical analysis of local voting behavior and evidence about a location's history and socioeconomic conditions. So because while Section 5, right, combated vote dilution and vote denial, Section 2 has primarily been used in vote dilution lawsuits. And you need to tell me, like, why is that important? You mentioned something when we were chatting before this about a Supreme Court case. Yeah. So is that why this is important? Can you tell me just a little about that? Yes. So basically, and there's two Supreme Court cases that I'm going to talk about. One happened already. It was in 2013. And in Shelby County v. Holder, basically that took Section 5 out of the Voting Rights Act. So you've only got one section left, Section 2. Remember that more difficult section to prove for preventing racial discrimination in voting. So Section 2 is still left. It's reactive and slow. We have no legal framework for vote denial cases where you there is that discrimination that you're trying to challenge under Section 2 at this point. But right now, there is currently in front of the Supreme Court a case called Brnovich versus the DNC, which was argued on March 2nd. And you might have heard about this because at issue, there are two Arizona laws. The first requires officials to discard a voter's entire ballot if he or she shows up to the wrong polling location on election day. And so then they're basically submitting a ballot outside of his or her assigned precinct. The second law bans ballot collection by most third parties, preventing others from submitting your ballot for you. So think about this. Say they send you to the wrong polling place or you go to the wrong polling place, right, because your Waze app took you somewhere you didn't mean to go. Your ballot would be tossed out. It wouldn't be counted. Consider maybe that you had to work a 24-hour shift on election day and you wanted your partner to drop off your ballot for you. They couldn't do that. So now, remember, Section 2 is about racially discriminatory effects. So why might those two laws that we just talked about violate Section 2? Because both laws probably hurt non-white voters a lot more than white voters. For example, the district court found that thousands of voters' ballots were discarded for being cast at the wrong precinct each election cycle with non-white voters being twice as likely to be affected as white voters. On the ballot collection ban, the district court heard testimony estimating that ballot collectors delivered thousands of ballots and that non-white voters disproportionately rely on ballot collection to cast their votes. For example, 
the vast majority of votes in Arizona are cast by mail, but not every group has reliable home mail service. 86% of white registered voters outside of metropolitan Arizona do, while only 18% of Native Americans do. Without reliable home mail, these voters are more likely to vote by having someone gather and deliver their ballots to the nearest post office, which they can't do. So the question in Brnovich is whether this evidence is enough to show that there's a Section 2 violation of the Voting Rights Act. And after oral argument, it seems likely that at least six justices of the nine total will vote to say that it's not. So it looks like the Supreme Court will require a much higher standard of proof to show a substantial racially discriminatory impact. And how it applies that will be crucial. So, for example, showing that Native Americans are more likely than white people to rely on ballot collectors is one thing. Showing that the ballot collection ban actually stops them from voting is much harder, perhaps even impossible. So the Supreme Court might not be able to uphold the Voting Rights Act to protect racial minorities from discrimination in voting. Which is great. Like now I'm totally depressed that we can't protect ourselves from these sorts of practices. Tell me there is hope, please. I know. So some voting rights advocates are hoping that the federal government can help because there are ways and there are plans to hopefully make it easier for Americans to cast votes. President Biden signed an executive order promoting voting access on March 7th, which was the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, a huge civil rights touchstone. And earlier, the House passed really sweeping election reforms, expanding voting rights. And then as a lawyer, you know, I always love litigation. That's another option, right? And, you know, Congress, just like those election reforms earlier, can intervene by passing federal election reform legislation. You know, H.R. 1, which is the one we just discussed and is awaiting Senate consideration, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which was introduced in the Senate days after the, you know, John Lewis's death last year. So interesting. I mean, but in the end, I think it comes down to us, right? It's about who we support, who each one of us listening support, who we talk to, how hard we fight to block these bills from passing. And that comes from talking and knowing what's on our local ballots, making sure our representatives reflect the policies that we want to see enacted or upheld. You know, we really hope we've been able to show that the thing about trying to restrict some people's voting rights is that we end up possibly restricting everyone's rights and making it hard to roll back these changes in the future. So if we really are a government that's by the people and for the people, we can't view voting as, quote, quality, as an Arizona representative recently said, over quantity. We need to ensure that every vote counts and that people in our country have the ability to vote. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces. 